welcome to the Changemaker Connect podcast. My name is Ruth and I run an organization called In Place of War. We believe that creativity conquers conflict. In this series of podcasts, I'll be speaking to some of the most inspiring people we've partnered with across the globe, so you can hear their incredible stories. For our very first podcast, we're joined by David Tovey, an artist based in London, who has one of the most incredible and inspiring stories I've ever heard. We'll be talking homelessness, HIV, illness and suicide, and how art and a guy called Gavin saved David's life. I first met David in Estonia at Tallinn Music Week a few years ago and was so moved by his talk that I kind of jumped on him afterwards and we've become very good friends ever since. And I've been able to see David grow as an artist and really push himself. So, hi David, how are you? Very well, thank you very much. You make me sound amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You are amazing, you are. Um, So, how's the pandemic treating you? Uh, I've got fatter. Um, I've put my back out a little bit um, and uh, I've gone greyer. Yeah. <laughs> but apart from that, really well. Yeah, that sounds like a common theme. I can relate to all of that as well. Um, so, yeah, thank you for joining us today. Um, I think I, I wanted to start this conversation, I guess, towards the beginning um, to get an idea of the sort of incredible and, you know, incredible life that you've lived. Um, so maybe if we start from from you being in the army can you tell us a little bit about that experience yeah totally totally um so i i come from a very working class poor background um and for me you know i couldn't really see uh, any other option um to get out of poverty for myself um and um and i couldn't afford to go to college to to for training so i decided to join the armed the armed forces because one, you get really good training. Um, I wanted to be a chef, by the way. Um, you get really good training. You get job security, um, and 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 to be honest, you know, you you meet some really really lifelong friends there. Um, you know, I, I I have a love hate hate relationship with the army. Um, you know, I, I love it because it's it gave me structure, it gave me training, um, it got me you know, focused on what I wanted to be in life, uh, first of all, um, and, um, and, and, and I made some really good friends. Um, but then there's the other side of it, like the war side um, and, and, and the, the, the constant training to kill people, um, which I could never get my head around. Um, and because of that, it, it, I think it's something which is... is you know, scarred me for most of my life. Um, so yeah, it's it's yeah, that's probably best way to start um, about the army. Um, I spent six years in the armed forces um, until um, I had to leave um, in nineteen ninety seven. I had to think back then, um, and um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my memory's not great, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so trying to remember that part. And, and, like. and, what, and what was the reason? What was the reason that you had to leave the army? My sexuality. Um, so it, it, it comes to that sort of time in life where. So I joined when I was sixteen, right? And and I was a very young sixteen-year-old. Um, you know, I hadn't properly gone through puberty. I didn't really know who I was. Um, I didn't really know. Um, much about life in a way I was very naive I grew up in the countryside um and it took me you know those first few years of being in the army sort of like discovering who I was um you know what I I guess you know 
aroused me as such. Um, and so for me, it was, yeah, it was that coming to terms of being queer, um, but being a soldier, but also being in there illegally, because at the time, still in 1997, um, it was illegal to be gay in the British Army. Um, wow, okay. Yeah, it's, wow. it's, it's crazy when you look back on it now. Um, it was the Labour government. That's so, it's so recent, isn't it? Yeah, it was Labour government so when it came in in 97. Well, you know, to have that kind of law. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. And so, I, and so I guess, I guess you were kind of open then about your sexuality and, and that, and that's, or, or did you just leave because you knew that you would have to hide it? That one. Um, so basically, <laughs> I knew. Yeah. Um, I was I was getting bullied a little bit anyway. Um, I always have been bullied, um, you know, as a, as a person because of the way I look. Um, and um, and it it got to a stage where I think I wanted to try and discover more about myself. Um, and knowing that I was starting to have these feelings. I knew that I, the, the army wasn't the right place for me. Um, I knew it was illegal. Um, I knew that um, I would have to leave um, because I'd be forced out anyway if they found out. Um, and so it got to a stage where I, I, I made that decision to leave. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was sort of pushed on me. Um, I had no choice in, in a way because it was either you know, they push you out fully or, you know, you, 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 you make that decision because you know, it's coming anyway. Um, cause it, yeah. you know, it's, it's obvious, like, you know, yeah. I'm gay, you know, it, it, it's, it, uh, anyone who knows me, it's written all over me, you know, I'm not <laughs> yeah. you know, overly camp or anything <laughs> like that, but most people know that I'm gay, uh, and I'm very open about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not shy about that. Um, but then back in the early nineties, uh, mid nineties, it wasn't accepted as much as it is now. Yeah. Um, you know, society's changed yeah. a lot in the last 20 years. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I left the army um, and then actually hid it, hid the fact that I was gay for many, many years um, after I left because... Wow, okay. I think it's, it, it was a shame thing for me um, because I grew up in this quite heterosexual working-class environment um, and... And being gay wasn't really accepted or talked about and stuff like this. Um, and then yeah. going into the army and having that sort of element where they, you know, being gay literally was not accepted um, and and having to, you know, lose my job because of my sexuality, you sort of like, you push everything inside so you, you, you hide from the facts and then you live a... A completely different life you, you live a life which isn't you uh, and I know we've spoken about this before um, and you know you become a different person you, you're not yourself um, yeah. and then you lose yourself don't you you lose yourself yeah and your identity the more and the more you hide it the worse it gets and the longer you hide it for the worse it gets and the bigger you know um, uh, I suppose explosion um, you know car crash happens um so yeah so I, so I guess you were dealing with that you were dealing with with a sort of repressing or hiding your sexuality um so what happened after you left after you left the army so I I moved to Australia to be honest with you um well I went out there first of all with my brother 
um, just for, I think it was about five, six weeks to do a bit of traveling because I had quite a bit of money when I come out of the army. So I paid for us to go away. Um, and, yeah. and I saw this different world out there. Um, and because it was so far away and this is, you know, I didn't have mobiles or anything like that, you know, it, I felt free. Um, so I came back to UK and then I worked for a bit, saved up a load of money and then got into trouble. Did I get into trouble before I go? Uh, yeah, I got into trouble with the law. Um, and then I was like, because of that, um, and the fact that I'd always hidden stuff, uh, I, I, I pretty much ran away. Um, um, they, they, in, in, in the UK law, they call it absconding. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. I, I absconded. And, and I think it's because of this, this whole trauma of having to leave the army because of my sexuality, being told that that was wrong. You know, I ended up yeah. getting into trouble, um, you know, because for me, I, I, I was trying to beat up the system um, for giving me this pain or, and also for making me gay. Um, you know, I kept blaming, you know, everything on my sexuality, hence why I hid it for so long, because I hated the fact that I was gay. Um, and um, right. so... Because of that, I, I, I ended up like getting in trouble uh, with the law and then going, do you know what? I've had enough of this country. Um, and I did a runner. Um, and I moved out. And to so Aust you went to, so you went to Australia when you when you did your runner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a place to go. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well it's it's probably it's probably the furthest the furthest <laughs> place away from the UK that you could go, I guess. Yeah, um, it was. And, and so and so then I guess I guess you returned, for, so you had some time in Australia, and, and, and during that time in Australia, did anything change in terms of the way you thought about your sexuality, the way you thought about yourself? Yeah, it did. Um, I started to accept it more. Um, I, I lived a completely different life in Australia. Um, I, I was chefing in restaurants, high-end restaurants out there. I was partying. Um, I lived in the gay um, um, district of Sydney in Surrey Hills um, and King's Cross and, and worked in those areas um, and I, I slept with the very first guy I ever slept with properly um, in Australia um, and, right. and, and, and I sort of started to sort of like think oh okay it isn't so bad because the thing was in, in Sydney especially it was accepted so much more than what it was in the UK. Um, yeah. and, 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 I, and I found it a little bit easier to live and the be started to sort of like try and figure out the gay community um, because I suppose in a way I've never really fitted in to it um, because you automatically, yeah. when you, you think about coming out, you also automatically think, oh, do I now have to be all camp or do I have to be this way or do I have to dress this way? Do I have to look this way? Do I have to listen to this type of music, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you try to fit in to, and you know, I'd just come out of the army for God's sake, like, you know, which was very masculine, uh, you know, and, and rah, 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 and all this sort of thing to suddenly them being very, hiya, like type thing. And it was just like, it was two different words, and and and, and, I, and I got really confused, and 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 it didn't, I didn't fit in. I found it really difficult to fit in, um, 
and and yeah i i think it ultimately ends up you know doing damage um you know over time without well, this realizing is it, it isn't it it sounds it sounds like in the uk you just couldn't be yourself and almost in australia you you found the real the real you kind of coming out and and navigated that world in which you underst- understood what it what it was to you to be to be queer to be gay um and so it was almost it sounds almost like a bit of an awakening in terms of in terms of your life and so so what happened because i guess you you came back to the uk at some point so what what brought you back to the uk yeah so my 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 first visa ran out so i came back um to face um the law um i guess um within i think 3 days of me landing in the uk i was then um, put on remand in uh, prison um, and I was there for five weeks um, got charged um, got given community service um, so then the the next six months I, I did community service um, and a lot yeah. of it um, a lot of it um, yeah, I guess kind of following um, on from that, you um, you ended up kind of a lot of a series of kind of bad luck, I guess, happened kind of following that, following you returning to the UK. Well, it was sort of like on and off because like I sort of like after I did my community service, I went back to Australia for another year um, and then I was like, no, actually, I need to sort of like, you know, start sorting myself out. And, you know, so I came back to the UK and I worked for quite, you know, for about seven years um, down in Plymouth, um, running restaurants and uh, stuff like that. And then I moved back to London. Um, and that's when, you know, things started pretty much going wrong for me. And by this stage, this was 2011. Um, so I moved back to London in 2007. And then over the next few years, my drinking um, and partying pretty much started to control me as a person um and i on it was i'm just trying to think now it was easter sunday 2011 i had um a massive stroke um at work and that was the starting point of stuff going wrong um for me because that was like this I don't know, it, it was like, you know, um, a stick of dynamite going off um, with my life. Because yeah. suddenly I started blaming my job, you know, because I was working seven days a week at the time. I was running my own restaurants and stuff. And and, and I blamed it all on the pressure of that. Not thinking that my party and lifestyle, you know, was anything to do with it, which obviously, ultimately it was. Um, and um, so then, you know, I... I lost everything, you know, um, within, uh, I tried going back to work a week after I had my stroke, which was, you know, stupid because, you know, can you imagine trying to cook <laughs> after you've had a stroke? Like, you know, I couldn't even say my name properly, let alone like, especially, do especially being a chef as yeah. well. That's, that's such a, uh, such an intense job to do. Um, wow. Okay. It's crazy. I, I ended up like, um, remember being, I, I sat like to the kitchen and I was like, how did that happen? Like, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, this never happens, you know, where I used to be able to cook about 20 meals at a time um, uh, uh, yeah. with six different like tables and stuff like this. I, I was struggling to cook one meal 
Um, and I was like, this isn't working. So I had to, I had to walk away from the businesses. Um, and, and then that was sort of like the catalyst of, you know, I, I suppose the domino effect of me losing everything. My partner left. I, um, I got diagnosed with a thing called neurosyphilis, um, which is um, starts out as a sexual disease, but it can take up to like 15 years or it's come out um, unless there's other problems. Um, and ultimately, there was other problems. Um, it was the, 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 the virus goes into your spinal cord um, and into the fluid and then goes up around your brain and starts sending you crazy um, and, um, and blind and makes your hair fall out. And my hair was falling out in massive, great big clumps. Um, and and I was like, this isn't right. So I, I went to doctors. They put me into hospital. Um, with um, started treating me for neurosyphilis, lumbar punches and all this sort of stuff. And then I was diagnosed with colon cancer um, four days after I, I was put into hospital which came through on the blood tests. Um, and that for me, it was quite a kick in the teeth, um, you know, to suddenly be told this. I was like, whoa, but at least I was in the right place. That's a lot of, that's a lot of news, isn't it? That's, that's a lot, that's a lot of kind of devastating help. I mean, just being told one of those things, especially after you've had a stroke to be then, yeah, diagnosed with, with all of these things is, it must've been, especially for like your mental health, get, going, getting through that, it must have just been kind of impossible. Well, and this was the thing. So I obviously I'd been admitted into hospital uh, for treatment and I found out that I had cancer. Um, and then literally 10 days after that, um, I was having um, these intermuscular injections, um, which is to do it's like procaine penicillin. So it's part penicillin, part chemo sort of injections um, to help with the neurosyphilis. And then I was all the tablets and stuff I was on. And they accidentally, it wasn't there for, um, put it into my vein um, instead of into the muscle. They'd caught one of the splinter veins from a previous injection, um, which then caused me to have a cardiac arrest. Um, and, and ultimately, this, this really affected my mental health because that, those injections was the most scariest thing that had ever happened to me um, because suddenly, you know, I was in this hospital room and the next thing is, I was on, I, I come to with defibrillator pads all over me on a trolley with umbrellas over my head, um, over top of me, going through a car park. They were running me from one part of the hospital through a car park wow. to the A&E department where they have more equipment. And it's the most scariest thing. Um, and, and, and that image has always been there. It's, it's never, I've never lost it. It's, 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 I can remember it as clear now to what it was when it happened in uh, 2011. Um, and, wow. And for me, that had a major effect on my, my, my mental health um, and caused me to have multiple um, overdoses trying to kill myself. Um, I guess you came, you came out of hospital having experienced several you know absolutely life-changing diagnosis and and you and I guess you kind of went from hospital back to your home but I guess you were pretty pretty ill in that time um and then and then I guess from there you, you said when you went back to your home I remember you telling me that you you couldn't you couldn't get into your your old house anymore um 
And then I guess from there, you, you went to living in your car, right? Yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, the whole time was sort of like all these overdoses and trying to kill myself and stuff like that. It, it took a major toll. And, and, and at the time, you, you forget about your bills. I wasn't paying my bills and stuff like that. And um, and then I came back out and, yeah, I, 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 the, the, the flat had been locked up, locks had been changed, all my stuff in there. Um, and I had no choice but to move into my car. Um, and, and that was a massive kick in the teeth for me. Um, you know, to having, you know, a previous year, having my own restaurants, to then suddenly being in a car, having lost everything. And I have a, I have a lot of pride I, in myself. It's interesting. It's interesting from, from how I see this kind of, this journey of, this kind of horror of being in the army and having to kind of, you know, suppress your identity and then this kind of birth in Australia, but then having to come back to the UK almost sort of messed, messed that up, didn't it? Because then it was just this kind of like series of, of kind of things getting worse and worse and worse for you um, to a point where, you know, like you said, you, you owned all these restaurants, you, you know, you had this great time in Australia and then the next thing you're living in a car after having all of these major health scares um, happen to you. And I, you know, I just think what that must do to your, to your mental health and, and also perhaps not to have the support. It, it sounds like there wasn't necessarily the support there to help you through that process of, you know, that time of being ill. Um, totally. It, just sounds, it sounds horrendous. Absolutely, totally. Um, and you, I, I have huge pride in myself um, and, and everything that I do. Um, and whilst I was in my car, I didn't ask for help. I, I couldn't do it. Um, I felt so much shame um, and I felt like I'd let everyone down. Um, I, I didn't really think about myself in this. Um, I, I just, I kept worrying what people would think and what they would say because they knew everything about me before. Um, so I literally just disappeared. Um, I didn't most, I think two of my friends knew, um, and, and, and I, I wouldn't even accept help from them. Um, I just literally disappeared. My family knew I was on the streets. My mum knew, um, and stuff like that. But there were no, they had no means in helping me. Mum and dad were living in a tiny little bungalow. My dad was disabled. They didn't have much money. They didn't, you know, um, it was mm. the whole time I was homeless, living on streets, which was about five and a half months, I think it was, um, when I was street homeless. I think I had about 80 quid the whole time. Um, and and right. I managed to survive. I, I was... You know, I didn't go to the day centres, um, stuff like that. I was literally eating out of bins. Um, and I know it yeah. sounds awful, but and, and it was awful. But there was, I, I managed to find some really good little delis, which threw away all their fresh produce every day. I had a little camping yeah. stove. Um, so, you know, being a chef and being in the army, you know, it's, you know I, I could survive. Um, but it got to the stage that I couldn't. Um, it got to the stage where the toll of living on the street, not eating properly, you know, there was th uh, this one point I hadn't eaten for about three days. Um, and, um, and I mean, especially, especially after you've been so ill as well. Mm. So then be all of a sudden, you know, just out on the street with everything that comes with that. 
I mean, that really that really would take its toll. Yeah, totally. And, and and that's the thing, like, you know, I, 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 I've literally just been diagnosed with HIV before. Why it was all the syphilis and all that was going on, I, I found that out at the same time. And I couldn't take my meds. So they weren't willing to give me my meds because I was in living in a car. Um, and because I had no safe place to keep all the meds and stuff. They, 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 I know they, there are schemes that are working now, but there wasn't when I was there. You know, so my health deteriorated um, and I went down to around about 60, 64 kilos in weight, which is nothing. Wow. Um, and I'm six wow. foot three. Uh, I'm a big guy. Um, and, and I lost huge amounts of weight. And yeah, my mental health just, it, it just completely folded um, and, and, and left me no choice. Um, so I decided to end it whilst in a park. Um, yeah. And that's where the story changes, I guess. <laughs> this is, yeah, so this is the changing point. And I guess, you know, I guess there's a saying, isn't there? Things have to get, you know, you have to get to rock bottom sometimes before you can get back up. But most people's rock bottom isn't your rock bottom, which was basically to kill yourself. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, I, can, I can see it when you tell the story, you know, going, I, can, I just imagine you in Australia, I didn't know you then, but I can imagine you having this amazing time um, and going from there to a point where maybe literally, what, a few, within a few years, having all of those things happen to you, all of them, all of them, absolutely terrible, not having the support there, living in your car. And then I guess you woke up one day and, and, and so what, on that day, what was, what was, your, what was your thought process? I'd actually gone into the council office that day um, and um, asked for help, and um, and that was it. Took me a lot to do that, um, and there was no help for me because I was still class at the time. I, so I tried going back to uni um, when I'd lost my businesses um, to try and sort of like help my mind and stuff um to help like you know focus on something different to get through my health problems and stuff like this and because i was classed as a student there's no help for you um you know there's no help for housing benefit or anything like that um and then when i was on the streets same thing um you know they they filled out some forms for me to try and get into some military social housing um which was a 10-year waiting list. But they were like, well, we helped you do the forms. Wow. Uh, we put the forms in for you. And that was the only help that was offered. They didn't even have to show me where a homeless centre was or anything like that. There was nothing, no help at all. And I just got sick of it. Yeah. And that day, I come out of the council office and I was in a right state. Um, you know, it just felt like they just didn't care. Um, and I just thought... I wouldn't even treat an animal with this way. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it was chucking down with rain. And I was like, I got absolutely drenched, drenched through to the bone. And I, and I hadn't eaten for about three days at this point. Um, and I was starving. And, I, you know, and, you know, I looked like a skeleton. Like, I literally did. I, I looked so ill. And I was walking back. So this was in um, Angel. And I was walking back to... Um, where I was parked in Stanford Hill, which is quite a way. Um, and going through Finsbury Park, I was like, I saw this park, it was getting dark, it was late at night, and I was like, do you know what? I was soaking wet, 
I suppose the best way to sort of explain it is like I physically and mentally couldn't see the following day. Um, yeah. And I didn't want to see the following day. Um, I just, I've given up. And it takes a lot for me to give up. Um, and I was, I was beaten. I, I was literally totally and utterly destroyed by the system. Um, and I felt there was no other choice. Um, so yeah, I, I literally, I went into this park um, and started to inject myself uh, with two grams of crystal meth. Um, I was really lucky, right? I was. I remember this moment. I was sat on this park bench, and I know it's like you know, you know this. Oh, it's on a park bench, homelessness and stuff like that. But this is literally how it happened, and I was crying my eyes out, like literally crying my eyes out. I was rocking forward and backwards, forward and back backwards. And I started to um, inject when this voice just went, "What the fuck are you doing?" And I was like. Do you know when you just completely get sidetracked and thrown? I was like, what, what, what was that like this? And it was this guy stood there and he went, what are you doing? And I was like, um, um, and I didn't know what to say. And, and I sat there and I literally was bawling with tears. I, I, and I was trying to talk to him and he stayed with me for a couple of hours, this guy called Gavin. And he was a park enforcement officer. He'd gone there to just, make sure all the place was locked up and etc etc and he he was walking through at the time at that exact time when I was uh, ending it and I don't know whether it was coincidence fate I don't know um but he was there at the right time he was like my saviour like yeah, upset it's, re it's, about it. it's, it's remarkable like, to me I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, we don't know why he was there at that time, mm. but thank God he was, you know. Um, and it just shows, doesn't it, when everything else has failed you, it only takes one person. And I think Australia. one of the things that I've learned, one of the things that I've learned from hang, from hanging out with you, David, is that, I mean, obviously, that the story you've just told there, I have no words. I feel every time I hear you talk about it, I feel so much pain. Um, for you and for what that must that day must have been like but for me you've sort of helped me understand how it is to be around homeless people um and this you know about acknowledgement about stopping and talking to people um and I think I think it's it's maybe it's something that was maybe difficult for me to do before I always acknowledged but now I go and sit with people and talk to them and try and help as much as I can and I think you know inspired by it just took one guy called Gavin to sit with you and now look you know and you're here <laughs> you're here you you know you didn't you didn't kill yourself and and not only are you here you're here and you're doing amazing things in the world um so I think, you know, that that's such a it's such a phenomenal story. And I guess at that point, that was the point your life changed. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I always say, like, you know, not only did Gavin save my life, he gave me a life. He gave me my life back, which yeah. is like, um, yeah, which and the thing was for the first time ever, because someone had taken a chance on me. Um, a, a total stranger has stopped to make a difference um, and I think that's why I do what I do um, because 
if he took a chance on me, then there was a reason he took a chance on me. He could see something. Um, and yeah. And I suppose, in a way, is the, all the stuff that I do now, it's sort of like um, acknowledgement, a thank you, um, a, you know, an ode. I, I don't know. I don't know how best to put it, but I do it all because of him. Um, you know, if he took a chance on me, so why should yeah, I take a chance? Yeah, because he gave on... you a life. Yeah. yeah he totally. gave you your life and and now you and now you're living it and you're you know um I think I think I think for us to to take a sort of pause there David and uh each each of our podcasts we're asking um the 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 person speaking to choose three tracks that mean something to them and so David I'm going to ask you um to tell us about the first track that you've chosen to play today yeah totally so um it has to be Porter's head, I think, um, for the first one. I I think. Um, oh, actually, actually, I'm gonna re rephrase that. So you might need to cut this bit. <laughs> um, sure. I think so. The first song I I I think it has to be um, is garbage um, and queer. Um, I think. I first heard it when I was in the army. Um, I was in Norway, and um, it was. I remember we were on exercise up in the Arctic, um, and I suddenly saw it on MTV, and a song, and people talking about being queer. And I was stuck in the army at the time, and, and I suppose in a way that's what made me realise that there was other ways of being um you know it wasn't all about being a yeah. heterosexual so yeah that that's my first song okay let's hear it
Okay, what an amazing track that, that was. And I can see why that would mean so much to you in that moment in your life, hearing that. Um, so, Sophie, we're going to move on now um, from sort of listening to the, to the story of the journey of your life to talking a bit about what you do today. Um, and, and, you know, for me, you're a phenomenal artist. And um, I'd like to, to hear a bit more about sort of the work that you, the work that you make. Mm. So I suppose in a way I I class I don't know whether it's the right sort of thing to class myself as a social artist, but I, I make socially engaged work or social justice work. Um, I make artwork which tells a story, changes and changes a narrative around social issues that obviously I've lived through. Uh, and other people are living through so you know homelessness addiction mental health um hiv suicide um these sort of subjects and i do it by using all different me mediums really um from photography to filmmaking to theater to installation work um that's one element of the sort of stuff i do yeah and then i also run a um homeless arts festival um because i believe that every person where, where wherever you come from color creed whatever should have access to the arts um but also have access to showcase their art you know and we know that yeah. most people when they're homeless don't have access to basic needs let alone a place to show their art but the community themselves are some of the most artistic and creative people I've ever met. Um, so yeah. I was like, I, I want to create a safe space where people can showcase their work. That's it's brilliant. It's just brilliant because it's about helping people express themselves, but also helping people tell their stories using arts, the arts to do that, and for people to engage. Because I think there is this this challenge that we have in the UK around people engaging with homeless people, and so you provide a kind of space for that to happen, which I think is is remarkable. I think it's um, really, I think it's really important as well to to provide a space because you know there isn't a lot of space out there for artists in general you know imagine if you've got this 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 um this problem of homelessness as well then you've got no chance of getting your work shown you know so yeah you know, and i thought well i i have access to space now because of the work and, and the profile that i've been building that i should be getting it for other people it shouldn't just i shouldn't just be the only person who's been homeless and being given space to showcase artwork there should be more people given it. It shouldn't yeah. just be me. Um, and so, and and so, David, with with the with the festival, I I I think I understand that you kind of ran this festival with almost no budget. Uh, something that you've that you've done. What what does the festival look like in terms of where does it where does it take place? Um, how many artists are involved? Um, and how do you do this with, it's remarkable to me, how do you do this with almost no money? Yeah, um, it's beg, steal and borrow, uh, friends. <laughs> yeah. um, I've been very lucky. The first two years, um, at the time, I was on disability benefit. Um, so I actually set the festival up using my disability, disability benefit to pay for the festival. <gasps> so all the advertising, all the posters um, and stuff like that. Um, was done through it from my benefit 
then the space was given to us for free by the old diorama art center um, in Warren Street, um, Camden. And they've been amazing. They've supported it from day one. Um, I was very lucky that I, I, I got artists in residence there for a year. Um, and instead of me having an exhibition, I asked whether I could have uh, uh, an exhibition of homeless arts uh, artists. So the the guys who I work with, all the different artists, they, they, they put their work in for free. Um, and we showcase their work. If they want to sell their work, they can. They get 100% of that sale. Um, I don't take a single penny from it. Um, I do all the promotion of the festival. It takes about 11 months to put together um, in all, so I do it in wow. my spare time. Um, and then the first two years, Diorama gave us space in kind. Um, and then after that, um, the amazing, uh, where it's based in Regent's Place, um, the management company who managed all that area um, stepped in to help pay for, uh, for more stuff. They paid for a producer to come and help. They paid for photographers mm -hmm. to come in and photograph every single piece of artwork on display. So then the artist had a, um, like a, a document of their work being in an exhibition. They paid for all the singers um, and musicians. Um, they paid for space. Um, they paid for the Camden People's Theatre to hire that space. Um, and they've been amazing. Um, so they've been a, like a, I suppose, a silent, incredible, a silent, a silent sponsor. Um, and they just, they understood what I was trying to do. Because um, the thing is, I never really asked people for money. Um, I've never done a funding bid uh, for the festival. Um, mainly because I don't know how to do it. Um, and uh, <laughs> having brain damage is a little bit difficult. Um, I find funders aren't very accessible um, and even if I find them not accessible then other people find it even worse um, so yeah so it's, it's, it's been that way of running the festival um, I was lucky last year we had it in London Manchester and Gloucester um, that's, put... that's phenomenal David I mean I think <laughs> you know I think it's it's real you know it's real proof that you can you can make something from nothing um, mm. and also that you can grow something so it becomes bigger and bigger. And, you know, the fact the festival takes place across the UK now and, you know, this is something that you funded from your disability benefit. It's, it's just <laughs> it's just remarkable. It's amazing. It's a bit, um, it's a bit crazy, really. Um, um, I know disability benefit is supposed to help with my living costs um, and, and living. I don't have it anymore. They took it off me. Um, they said I wasn't disabled enough. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. fight. I'm not going to fight the system. I, I'm fed up with fighting them. Um, so instead, I will yeah. use it to benefit other people. Um, I, I'd rather do that. That's very kind. thing is, Ruth, I, I, I don't do anything for money. Um, you know, I had money, it destroyed me, it nearly killed me. Um, I ended up on the streets partly because of it. Um, so, you know, most stuff I do now, you know, I'm just happy with showcasing my work. Um, I don't care. I think, I think I'd agree with you on that. I think for me, for me, uh, when I was younger, my dad told me a quote of, of a guy called Tony Wilson from Factory Records. And it's you can either make money, make history or make art. And I think, you know, I think that's there's something really profound in that. You know, I think the work that you do and and the change that you 
that you make is 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 phenomenal and and you know it's just it's incredible what what you've what you do and what you've done um again i want to just take a pause um just to ask you to now play your second track for us so can you tell us a little bit about this track yeah so this this second track is roads uh by porter's head um i i find that when i'm struggling or when I feel like that I can't progress, that this is one of those songs that makes me feel like I can do it, I can keep going, I can, you know, persevere. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Such a good track. Okay, here it is. Oh, my God. 
latest piece of work that you've that you've been working on I've I've been um, fortunate enough to have kind of had the inside track on this on this uh on this piece of work um this is this is something I guess that's very very personal piece of work to you um it's a piece of film and performance uh, and n- newly commissioned music um and I guess this tells the story of of your of your suicide um I've I've seen some bits of this and I have to say it's you know it's incredibly powerful and it's incredibly moving um and it's very challenging and difficult as well in in places and I guess obviously purposefully so given the subject matter but David can you tell us a little bit more about this piece of work and and a bit about the process of of how you how you put it together because it's mixed media so for me it's really interesting all the different elements to it yeah totally so it's called Un- Unknown Soldier, um, and and I think s- everyone is the unknown soldier. Where, whether you've been a soldier or not, right? Um, when you've been through trauma or any sort of like hardship, y- you are a soldier to be able to get through it. Um, but it also is about how we as human beings, we 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 don't really know other human beings truly um, and and I wanted to showcase the fact that you know people see me they they, they you know they, they, they know, most people, a lot of people know my story but they don't truly know me they don't know what I've been through uh, and the hardships and stuff like that um, and I sort of I wanted to put it all into a sort of like a film a story piece to raise awareness of veterans who take their own lives on average, in the UK, around about 70 veterans uh, end their life by suicide every year. Um, and that breaks my heart because it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be happening. Um, you know, there, there, there should be more help and responsibility taken for what they're being put through. Um, so the story itself starts about this guy looking back on his life basically it's all memories so there's a film which is projected um which is archive footage for around about 20 30 years worth of footage um and and memories um of this guy as he's falling apart is deciding to make that journey to end his life um i really have struggled making this um Mentally, it has drained me. Um, emotionally, it is extremely hard for me to, to do um, because as the story goes on, it's a 25-minute piece and there's, a, I suppose, a theatrical spoken word element to the film as well. Um, and it's of this story of this guy 
his pain, his anger comes out, um, and ultimately takes his life. Um, it's extremely powerful. It's extremely hard hitting, um, but it yeah. has to be talked about because we as a society just keep brushing this under the carpet. We don't talk about suicide, you know, and it's the biggest killer in men over 40 um, in the UK. Um, yeah. You know, I was really lucky. Do you know what I mean? I was really lucky that someone stopped me, you know, and but not everyone has that. So even though I've used a lot of my own home footage um, and archive footage to put the film together, um, it could be anyone. It could be any soldier out there who's going through PTSD, trauma, whatever it is, mental health problems. Um, and, and I wanted to do it to raise awareness. Um, you know, I know people will struggle to watch it. Um, it's not easy viewing. It's not like, you know, it's, it's not commercial art. Let's just say that. Um, it's, yeah. I've been away this week um, filming. Um, so... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I was up in Hull um, in the venue putting it together and we're going to broadcast it on World Homeless Day, which is also World Mental Health Day, um, 10th of October at 8pm, to yeah. hopefully change people's perceptions around this, get people talking, you know, even if it's just getting people having a conversation with friends, um, you know, if you've got a friend who's been homeless or you know, they don't even have to have been homeless. Someone who's having a hard time, pick up the phone and call them, you know, because that could save someone's life. Um, I truly believe that. And, and, I and, think, and, and that's I what think, I try and do with my work. It's, it's, more important, it's more important now than ever, I guess. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. People are losing their jobs. People are losing, you know, their livelihoods and their, and, and so many people are struggling now. And I guess we've already been through austerity and, you know, there are more food banks than ever. There are more, more homeless people than ever. And now we're in a pandemic where I guess very, very shortly the furloughs will end. And I, I imagine there'll be a whole, a whole load of redundancies. Um, and so I think, I think that's it, isn't it? It's about people knowing they, sh they, they, they can talk to talk about suicide because I guess in the past there's been sort of stigmas around the, the kind of taboos around talking about mental health and around suicide. And what I'm loving at the moment is how many of my male friends I see on social media talking about mental health and sharing and saying they're there for other people and I think it's so so important and I think you're from what I've seen of your your film I feel like it just it just brings up the opportunity to have that conversation but also the reality of what it is you know what it what suicide is um so I think for me based on what I've seen I think it's incredibly incredibly powerful and incredibly necessary so thank you for making it because I think you know it takes it's it must be for me it must be so challenging and difficult to make and to revisit those moments um in 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 such a impactful way as you have um yeah totally agree so, I, I, I I agree with this whole pandemic thing at the moment um it's 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 never been stronger 
um, this this fact that we have to talk to people, even though we're isolated. Um, this is a time that we really need to be picking up phones and talking to friends and family, neighbours, our communities, you know, because there are a huge amount of people struggling. Um, but, you know, not just being, you know, isolated, but also the fact that so many people are losing their jobs. You know, they don't know how they're going to um, progress in life um, because there isn't opportunities like there used to be with other jobs because it's mass, mass redundancies. We're going into the biggest recession for 300 years. You know, we, we have to be talking about stuff like this. Um, you know, yeah. we really do. No, this is it, isn't it? I think it's uh, it's impacted a lot already, particularly on the creative industries and, you know, things like the, the performance live sector. Um, and so many people that I know have been hugely affected people who haven't had work for seven months you know and I think this will this is something that's going to be around now for a while so talking to people is is absolutely key to sort of helping people through this time um do I guess I guess sort of bringing this sort of slightly towards the end now um I guess it's just really to, to for me to I like to ask people to kind of summarize their their learnings from their life. And so if you had one big life lesson, one one thing that you could you could say to people, um what would it be? Oh. Wow, that that's a massive massive question. Um <laughs> I think it is. I think it's sort of acceptance um to accept who you are um i know we've spoken before and it's taken me nearly 40 years to like myself um and you know to understand who i am as a person um who my identity um and i think you know i really wish i could go back in time and just told myself to actually just accept who i am um i think it would have saved so much heartache and problems um so yeah, that's that's probably I, I I tell people you know, especially young people if they're listening you know if they're if they're struggling with their sexuality and stuff just be yourself, fuck everyone else don't care don't worry about what other people say just be yourself and accept it yeah um, because otherwise it will yeah. just eat you up and it will eat you up so yeah. much um, yeah that's really yeah that's a re that's a really good life lesson definitely um in terms of um just before the end i i asked you yesterday to think about a quote that inspires you that you kind of live your life by so what did you come up with oh this is probably one of the best quotes ever and it's martin luther king jr <laughs> who for me is an absolute idol of mine. Um, I'm, I'm probably secretly in love with him. Um, um, I, I really would have loved to have known him um, progress in life instead of being shot. Um, and it's his quote, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And I really believe that. I don't hate anyone. Um, uh, you know, love is, you know, it's a conqueror. It's a conqueror of hate. It's a conqueror of fear. Um, and if we can all just have that in our minds, then the world would be such a better place. It really would. 
That's that's so yeah, that's so profound and it's so right for now as well. I feel like we're we're existing in a time when things are so polarized and it feels to me like there are two there are two sides. There are two sides going on. One is the side of love and one is the side of hate. Mm. And uh and it's 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 yeah, if everyone just loved each other that would be, you know, the world would be a very look very different to, to how it does. Yeah. Um as we come to the towards the end, I'm gonna ask you now to tell us what your third track is. Right, so this one's a little bit outside the box, um, and the reason I've chose this is because this is a guy who I am so inspired by, who has gone through hell and back, um, from being street homeless as a young teenager to um, you know having to fend for himself for a long, long time. He taught himself pretty much every single instrument that you can imagine and he's a blues singer called Fantastic Negrito and Ah. he is phenomenal and the song is a song called A Cold November Street and the reason I chose this song in particular is because it was a cold November night that my life was saved. Wow, wow what a perfect track to end on. Okay here it is.
Okay, so um, I want to say a huge thank you to David for, for coming and sharing with us um, today. It's, I know it's hard to tell that story, so thank you so much for sharing it. Um, I think you're one of those people, David, that when, whenever I meet you, you make me want to be a better person. And you also have taught me that as human beings, if we put our mind to it, we can pretty much do anything because you're living proof of that. So thank you so much for sharing your inspiring journey. And yeah, it really is proof that you can do anything you want to. So thank you so much, David. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed our podcast, please like and subscribe.